Expanded Thinking is a new podcast produced by Talking Words. I'm your host, Walter Mason. And in this special eight-part series of conversations with writers, creatives, and spiritual practitioners, I'll be introducing you to some remarkable guests whose powerful ideas and extraordinary stories will inspire you to live a more fulfilling and more expansive life. In this week's episode, I'm chatting to Nigel Featherston about doing the creative work. Nigel is an acclaimed author of literary fiction. His finely crafted works have drawn great critical attention, and he's been shortlisted for many prestigious awards, including the Canberra Critics Circle Award, which he won for his book Bodies of Men. His latest novel, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing, is an absolute masterpiece. Today on the show, we're going to talk about where creative expression springs from, the necessity of solitude, and how nature can feed our art. Nigel, you've been incredibly prolific over the past few years, and you're a great inspiration to all of us. I, I was asked to review one of your novellas many years ago, and that's, that's how I discovered your immense talent. Um, but what's the What's the secret to being so productive? What gets you to sit down and do the writing every day? Um, very good question. I, you know, I think that, um, uh, you know, I, I, I really did one of these people who started writing when I was very little. Maybe I was about 10. I certainly remember being in year four at school and we had double creative writing classes. And the way I remember it, we actually had those classes all the way to, through to year 10, which is pretty amazing. So this is back in the late 70s, early, late 70s, early 80s. And so I just remember, um, you know, the teacher would say, okay, you've got a double period, write something, write a story, get out your exercise pads, and I would write a story. And, you know, they were terrible. It would be like me and my two elder brothers going bushwalking and, you know, finding an old man in a cave or something, all made up, and it was all dreadful. Um, and I, I just I just absolutely love it. I, I've just got this very clear memory of, like, the classmates at the end of the two periods saying, um, I look at how much Featherstone's written and I'd go, well, how much have you guys written? I'd go like two paragraphs and I'd go, I've written 18 pages. I mean, complete bollocks, complete rubbish. But I just thought, but like in the context of all these other things, it's really hard and writing can be excruciatingly difficult, as you well know, Walter, but I just thought, but we're just making stuff up. Like, isn't this great? You just sit down and go, you know, my brother found a bird and then I hid it from him in the attic and like, that was fun. Um, and I think that, uh, well, what, you know, 45 years later, I'm still just, I'm still that kid who just gets out his exercise book. I still write everything in a pad with a pen and I still sit down and I'm still that kid who just wants to write and tell a story and maybe just a little bit be, um, you know, admired for that. I think I can be really frank about that. And I do remember, I don't think I've, you've just got me thinking, Walter, that I very clearly remember in fourth class the teacher saying, all right, who would like to share their story? And I put my hand up and was going, me, 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 me. And then the teacher would go, no, how about somebody else? And then someone else would get the story. And then I'd go, me, 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 me. And then he would go, no, no, someone down the front. How about someone down the front? And then I went, me, 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 me. And then he said, um, Nigel Featherstone, you're being very rude and very annoying. Put your hand down. 
And I think that, you know, when I send stuff out to my agent or publisher, I'm still just that kid going, me, 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 read my story and love it. Uh, that naughty little boy. <laughs> I'm still a naughty little boy. And I was actually a, I was a delight, according to my mother. I never got into trouble and I worked hard. I wasn't actually very academic, but I just wanted to please people. And I think I'm still trying to please people. Yeah, yeah. There's something interesting to that too, isn't there, isn't there Nigel? I think um, that maybe at the heart of many writers is that is that desire for some some extra attention you know and i think we 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 laugh at that and push it aside or, or we say that's a that's not a very um high motive but it's a very real one isn't it well and i i i, I feel very sure i've heard john marsden say that you know he started off just wanting to be admired and 10 million copies later he still wants to be admired um but i i think that i think i think it is true i think we do want to be admired we do want to be heard um, we do want to be read, you know, um, and but I think that my motive has changed. I think that these days it's things that I write about things that I'm angry about. I write about things that, you know, I'm worried about. I write about things that make me sad or things that I know a bit about but I want to know so much more about or things I don't know anything about whatsoever. And I think that there's also an element of putting things on the cultural record, you know, being a gay guy. You know, I was born in 1968. You know, I was coming out as a teenager uh, in 1983 when AIDS came to Australia. And, and, and there is a part of me, and I think many gay um, people of our generation, that we were silenced. We couldn't talk about anything. You know, I was madly in love as a 15-year-old, madly in love with another boy in my, um, in my class at school. And we, you, we couldn't talk about it. We, we spoke in code. And so I think that, you know, um, you know I, my latest novel, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing, is really me trying to explore a lot of that stuff and give voice to a lot of stuff that I've never given voice to because we weren't allowed, were we? we the, the law was against us. The church was against us. You know, the schools were against us. Families were against us. And the medical profession, you know, still roundabout there we're only just getting the heads around it not being a um, mental illness so I think for a lot of us at a certain age we want to put things on the cultural record this is what it was like for us mm, mm, mm. that's interesting that that motive of memorialization mm. is, is, is a substantial sort of artistic goal isn't it yeah, I think so. And and really, yeah, I think I sort of see it as putting it on the cultural record. You know, I do want, not in kind of like a me, me, me way, but I would hope that in, you know, 50 or 100 years, if people are uh, researching, you know, gay life in Australia at this time, they might find some works by me and many other wonderful Australian writers and poets, um, that there would be a record for them to have a look at. And this sort of strata of history, they would go, okay, this is what those writers were talking about. And I guess I want to be a part of that. But it's not, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a hermit. I'm a natural hermit. And for every hour I socialise, I need nine hours of me and the chooks. Um, and that's just, I, in the past, I was very, you know, embarrassed by that and shamed by that. But now I think that's just, that's just life. And that's just, that's just me. But, you know, I still do want to, um, you know, have a voice in, in the world, I guess, like everybody. Yeah. Yeah, embrace it, embrace it. Yeah. Um, so what does it mean to you to be a writer? Um, do you think there's some sort of fundamental writerly spirit that, that you're channeling? Um, there's certainly a, a sort of a creative spirit. There's, there, there are writers and artists in, in, in my 
family, particularly down my uh, paternal line and my father's a lifelong outsider artist. Um, I think that I do want to create stuff. Um, more and more I'm involved in lots of different ways of writing, you know, as well as writing novels. I write um, for the theatre, I write for newspapers. And so I, you know, even this morning I was writing a piece um, which apparently will be published on Saturday. And I just love that idea because I get up very early. I get up at dawn and I love that idea of my brain still being a bit in the dream world and then I go and have a quick bit of breakfast and then I go down to my writing room and I love that idea of going, I wonder what's going to happen. I know I have to write this piece or I want to write this piece. I wonder how it's going to turn out. And then three hours later, you know, you would get that sense too where you just think, I did not know I was going to conclude that. <laughs> and so I, I think I do just love making something out of nothing. And um, uh, But I, I do, you know, I'm not at all, I, what am I trying to say? Just say it, Nigel. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not motivated by being, any kind of fame or anything like that, but I do want to be known as an artist and I, I approach writing as an art form. Um, some people see, see it as a business or some people see it as a vocation and then that's all completely valid. But for me, it's about um, that wonderful thing of creating something out of nothing, particularly when it's fiction, you know, all we've got is ink on the page mm. and we have, we have to convince people, you know, with my heart is a wild thing, people on Instagram or Twitter will be messaging me or posting things saying, oh, you know, this character's moved me so. And, you know, that just still blows my mind, you know, that someone would be, oh, I love his decision he made at the end, you know, Patrick, good on you. you that was a bold decision. And people being moved by ink on a page and that I find just absolutely fascinating. I was reminded where, but in my late teens I did a bit of photography and, you know, literal real photography, so to speak. Um, you know, where you put the paper and the chemicals and this this image would emerge on the white paper out of these chemicals and I thought it was magic and I still think it's magic that, um, you know, we can um, move people uh, with just ink on the page. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nigel, well, I was going to ask, is writing an art or a craft? But you've kind of answered that for me. But do we need to make that distinction anymore anyhow when, when the worlds of art and craft seem to, to sort of, more continuously blend together. Yeah, I, you know, and, and there are times, you know, I've heard Christos Chalkas uh, say that writing for him is a, is, is a trade. And, and really? I think, yeah, and I think that's all really fascinating too. And and I do see, I see writing as work, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I it really riles me when someone would say, are you working today or not? And I <laughs> and, and I think, what do you mean? And, and you know, they'll, they'll always think of other types of work or or they'll think, because I've lived in Goldwood now for 12 years, they'll think, oh, what's it like being retired? And I think, oh, my God, I, I, I work at least six days a week. You know, I'm at the desk 12 hours a week. And then I think, how, how do people think that I pay my way? Like, you know, I don't have any e private income. I know I come from a bit of a fancy neck of the woods in Sydney, but I have no private income. And as everybody knows, you know, what's, what's the average Australian writer earns 12000 dollars and much less for australian women so and and, and as you know stitch, stitching together twelve thousand from writing is <laughs> is a tough ask and you need twice that if not more to survive so you know that's why i'm pitching stories and you know ask my agent to, <laughs> if 
find places for my manuscripts, which, which I've been very fortunate about. So I think it's all that. It's a vocation. It's a trade. Uh, um, it is a craft. There is a, the craft of writing, the, the technical aspects of writing. And, and then I think it, there's also a just blind faith. There's almost a religious side of writing. And I don't have a religious bone in my body, but you kind of almost just have to believe that when you sit down to write, trying to get 80,000 words in the right order to make a novel, you kind of just have this weird blind faith that you can do it. And having said that, I have a very annoying critic on my shoulder that's active all the time. So that, that's where the faith comes in, you know. I can I can just do this. So, um, but then there is the business element. You know, you get to the end of the day and go, oh shit, I better send some invoices. <laughs> um, so it's all those things. But it's a it's a what a what a pastime to be a part of. And I, I think without it, I I would be, um, uh, uh, you know, struggling. Yeah, yeah. I oh, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we? <laughs> yes. And without reading, I'd be struggling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um. So I wanted to talk to you about inspirations because I think um, it's, hard, it's hard sometimes to pinpoint our inspirations to pursue this kind of, uh, of artist's life. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, uh, what are some of the creative inspirations that came, came your way at a young age? Um, I think, I think there, have been, there have been, well, probably three. One is family and one is sexuality and, and the other is the third is place. And I did grow up in a very fraught um, family environment. I, I was raised by two um, people who hated each other. Um, they didn't sleep in the same room. They had nothing to do with each other. They kept going and got divorced quite late in life only because um, they just felt that's what they needed to do. So there was, no, there was no love. It wasn't like they went from love to hate. It was just hate and then indifference. They just had a bit of a detente mm-hmm. where they just went, oh, let's just not having to do with each other. We might better raise these three boys. So I think um, that's made me really interested in, in family, in, in marriage, in domesticity, in how it can be a trap. Um, and growing up in an upper middle class part of Sydney, um, which I left when I was 18 and I've never gone back and I left purposely because it was, it was killing me. Um, uh, you know, you, you just see behind all those wonderful facades, literal building facades that, that I guess everybody, wherever they are, they've, they're just miserable. Um, well, some people are miserable. So I think I, I, I wanted to, I've always wanted to work out what, what makes family and what makes domesticity work. Um, and then I, I sort of in parallel with that, I did spend the first 18, 18 years of my life in the same suburb and so not far from the northern beaches of Sydney, right on the edge of the Kringo National Park, you know, an hour and a half up to the Blue Mountains. And I got to know those places incredibly well. And... Um, I think I'm the sort of person who loves place very much, but I also was able to, you know, go back to the same beach for, you know, 16 years of my life and get to know all parts of it, Walter. Um, and uh, uh, and so, I, so I think you know, I've, I've often write about place and those who, you know, do like my work say that, you know, my war novel, uh, Second World War novel is mostly set in um, Egypt, in Alexandria, and, and people say that uh, I evoked Alexandria you know, really beautifully. Mm. My Heart is a Little Wild Thing is mostly set down in the Monero between the Snowy Mountains and the far south coast, um, and people say I've, I've evoked that really well. So I, I do love place, and I, I've, I've often just wonder, you know, why are we so... 
why do we need places so much? And then as we've been talking about is, is sexuality, which it took a long time to write about because I was just very shy about it. I remember, I've, I think I've had about 50 short stories published and I, I remember it took me probably around about story 25 to go, oh, I think these two people are going to be men and they're going to be in love. Oh, I wonder what's going to happen there. Like, will it ever be published? Um, and that was the vibe. Like, that was kind of the feeling. Like, would people be interested in this sort of stuff or whether it was acceptable? So I'm still, yeah, I think I'll be forever dredging up stuff about, you know, as David Marr talks about, particularly in relation to Patrick Wyatt, but that's an interesting kind of trajectory, isn't it? Patrick mm. Wyatt, David Marr, and then what we're talking about. And David Marr is still, I, I was lucky enough to interview him at the Canberra Writers Festival and he talked about that men of a certain age and generation will always have shame in their bodies. So a lot of me is writing out of that shame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And how about sort of um, cultural milestones along the way, books or movies or? Yeah, well, certainly um, you know, um, music has been a, a huge uh, part of my, my life. And I remember the very first single I bought was Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights on, yeah. on LP, and I've, on um, the little seven-inch single, which I still have. <laughs> and... Um, and so I, I still listen to music and the composer, there is a composer in, the, in this latest novel. Um, but I, I, do, I do distinctly remember um, uh, watching with my mother the BBC version of Brideshead Revisited. I think it was on a Sunday night uh, on, on the ABC. And I didn't know much about, you know, Evelyn War or anything. I just knew that this was an interesting story and I'd sit down there and watch it with my mother. And I loved the music. I adored the soundtrack. And I adored um, the, the two main boys and the family. And even though it wasn't my family, of course, but, you know, I, I think there was something I knew that I was connecting to. And it, what's really interesting is Brideshead Revisited is actually a war story. It actually begins with, you know, a soldier returning from war and finding that house. You know, it's framed terribly. We could never get away with it now, could we? Yeah. Um, but I remember watching it and... Uh, and, and then we reached about halfway through, watched it, you know, in the first iteration. So it was all very exciting. You know, even Molly Meldrum on Countdown dressed up, didn't he, as, <laughs> as uh, Sebastian uh, with his teddy bear, didn't he? And, and actually I love Countdown as well. So there was me watching Countdown and then Brideshead Revisited. And anyway, I remember my mother saying, I think at this point, Nigel, you might need to go to bed. And I went, oh, but this sounds like an interesting episode, like them all. And she said, I think it's time for you to go to bed. And I had no idea why I had to go to bed. And, um, and then, um, you know, it did take me a little while to, to come out to my mother. And when I did, I said, you know, you can't be, you know, are you shocked? And she goes, oh, of course I'm not shocked. You used to play that Brideshead Revisited soundtrack on record over and over and over again. What sort of hint were you giving me back then? And then it took me ages until I bought the series on DVD. This is the original one. And I watched it all again. And, 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 and the scene that my mother didn't want me to watch is when the, the two young men go up on the roof of Brideshead and sunbake naked. And I thought, is that, was that the horror? Was that the thing? So uh, isn't that funny? But um, so, yeah, that, that was certainly a, a seminal uh, a story for me. I think... Um, uh, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro's um, uh, Remains of the Day is another novel that uh, is very, very important to me, um, as is uh, J.M. Coetzee's Disgrace. 
I think an extraordinary novel for me, which I read regularly. Um, Helen Garner's the, the Spare Room. You know, every now and again, just as an exercise, a private exercise, I just try to write. You know, the first paragraph. You know, try to write that, uh, rewrite that myself, and I just think this is where Helen Garner is just way ahead of you know us mere mortals. Um, I do love the work of Christos Chalkas. I've read everything he's he's written. Um, uh, so they're probably, um, you know, I could rattle off a whole, uh, Aminata Fauna, the Glaswegian um, Sierra Leone writer, um, is someone else I, I admire very much as well. Mm. Um, so uh, th- that would be, you know, and I think one novel, well, it's actually a novella, um, that I think is extraordinary is Annie Prue's Brackback Mountain. Mm. Um, it was published on my birthday in 1997, and I bought it as the, 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 the original novella and I when I read that I thought this is someone who completely gets I think more than the gay experience she was writing about um you know the, the Marlboro man and what if the Marlboro man was gay and I got that and I'm not I don't think I'm the smartest reader in the history of the world but I got that and I thought I think Annie Prue's written that novel that novella for me and I, I read these days I read that for how she evoked place, you know, the mountain boiled with demonic energy. You know, that's, that's you know, yeah, again, Helen Garner level of, you know, skill. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing piece of writing. And I always think that she... She does men so so very very well, you know. She's she she does it, and and I and I, I I've always admired this, but it is interesting, you know, when those men are up there, you know, meant to be looking after animals, and then they just sort of go to bed, and the next morning, you know, they go, oh, I think we fucked last night, and and, and for us gay men, I think we do, we might just need to dwell on that a little bit more. <laughs> And I, I love the sort of subversive power of the soundtrack. That's something I'm going to have to examine in some of my own art. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the soundtrack, the soundtrack. Oh, I love the soundtrack. <laughs> um, so, Nigel, so so you're gay, and yes. it might come as a shock to you to know that I am as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of to, We're to, in the club. I'm sort of shake your world like that. It <laughs> was, But it would seem that a lot of people are a sexual outlaws in some way. Do you think that the queer spirit is inherently creative? And if so, why? You uh, may really, not think that. Well, it's re- really interesting. And as you've noticed, I just sort of just speak, open my mouth and just hopefully I land on something. But I do remember I was very, very um, big campaigner for marriage equality in Australia. And I was writing letters to ministers of all flavours and writing you know, submissions. I've been with my partner, Tim, for 25 years. Um, and writing submissions and I was, you know, I went up to a Labor minister maybe 15 years ago at an event in Canberra and he was actually in power at the time and I said, you know, marriage equality is very, very important and he turned around and said, you'll never get what you want. Mm. And I thought, oh, thank you, thank you. I thought I might have a sympathetic ear there but apparently mm. not. Um, but, and I'm very glad it came in but I, I think it was a someone shared this on social media. I think it was a New York Times or somebody writing really eloquent article about as soon as marriage equality goes around the world, um, queer folk will no, no longer have any reason to make art. Mm. And I thought that was a little bit of a narrow view of it, but I thought it was interesting, you know, so much of us being driven by wanting to be accepted and heard like we've been talking about, mm. wanting to share the taboos and share things that people still don't want us to say at, at you know, barbecues. Um 
So I think there was a lot of, you know, pushing against that or just wanting to, you know, as I say, like Brides had revisited, that was shocking to my mother because we had two bums on the screen. But but what, you know, Annie Prue, for whatever reason, didn't evoke gay sex. It's taken others like, well, Dorothy Porter was doing that long before Christos Chocolates, but she was certainly evoking lesbian sex in a very explicit and wonderful way. And then Christos is certainly well and truly uh, gone there. And, and then plenty of others, you know, more, more recently, writers like Peter Polides from Western Sydney have, have been evoking gay sex. Um, you know, I think it's very easy for us to assume that now we've got marriage equality, everything is fine. And of course, it just isn't. There'd be pockets all over the world. And, you know, I do live in a regional town. Having said that, you know, um, the ACT is factually one of the most progressive jurisdictions in Australia voted for the Republic way back when by a long shot and have voted for marriage equality by a long shot and has had progressive governments more often than not. But, you know, every now and again, Tim and I would just walk wandering around and there'll be just, you know, oh, you bunch of, you know, you, you couple of faggots or stuff like that. And one of those happened not that long ago, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, but I was sort of going now having lived in a regional part of Australia that, um, which is not that regional, you know, Goldwyn's two hours from Sydney and one hour from Canberra. But yeah, you know, I, would, would, a, would a young person now or a young couple wander up and down Goldwyn's Main Street holding hands? Not lesbian couples said they tried to hold hands in the Barrel Main Street, you know, Barrel for heaven's sakes. Mm. And they, they were, you know, they've, they've got children and they were abused. So um, things changed a lot for a lot of people. And I think it's also wonderful when you hear like people our age who have children or adult, you know, young adults, where if one of them starts, one's a boy and starts dating another boy, their their friends just couldn't care less. You mm-hmm. know, it's mm-hmm. it's and um so I think that's absolutely, you know, very, very healthy. Um, but I think, you know. If, if we're writing from the body, which is something I've been doing more and more, and if I'm scared about writing about something, then I'll go towards that. It's taken me 50 years to have that courage to do that. And I often don't even know what that is, you know. Um, why is it that we're scared about writing various things? And so I, I just follow those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to those scary places. Go to those scary places. Something interesting will emerge. Yeah. I know that you wrote much of your most recent book, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing, in solitude. So tell us about alone time. Is it something you think is essential? Um, oh, I think there's 7 billion ways to write. And and I think, you know, it's up to what, what we've discovered. There was, what, 25 million people now in Australia, so there's 25 million different ways to write. <laughs> so I'm very much, you know, I, I admire those who have a gazillion responsibilities and, and find 10 minutes to write here and half an hour to write there and... Um, but I, I, and I say this without any faux sort of humbleness, um, if that's, if that's the right word, that I actually don't think I've got a brain big enough to write novels. But if I, if I forget everything else, if I forget social media, if I forget paying bills, if I just, if I just don't worry about anything, forget my partner's name or forget that that my dad's quite ill at the moment, which he is. If I just go, I have to get this next little sequence right and forget everything else. It's kind of like emptying a laptop of everything Mm -hmm. and just letting it to run one program. I might just be able to write one decent sentence. And then the next day I can write another decent sentence. I think that for me, it's a, a beautiful day and a productive day is where I've written a bit where I've read 
more and I've walked a lot. And then I get to the end of the day and go, okay, I'll watch the ABC News and chill out now. Yes. So that's that's where the that's where the sort of a creative mulch is in that, that time of solitude. Oh, very much. I'm a big fan of residencies, you know, whether it's Varuna or Bandanoon or Bandanon rather. And I did this new novel is partly set in Bandanoon, so hence the little slip up there. <laughs> but I do love going away. And, and don't you think that lovely thing when you go away and you, you, you're in a different space, you've got a view or not a view or a different desk or, you know, you're looking a different way and, and that space, you know, those three novellas of which you very kindly reviewed at least one, if not two, I think. Well, two, I think, yeah. Yeah, they, they were all written in a month down in Launceston because I had a residency at the Gatekeeper's Cottage and I was actually there to write written some short stories, but I, I came back with these novellas. Um, uh, so, yeah, I do love going away and that that's a really interesting um, uh, um, process. And and when I was abundant non for a month, apparently I was the most reclusive artist they ever had. And at the end of week two, they knocked on the door and wondered if I was still alive or still there. But I just loved it. I was so happy. You know, I was just wandering around, writing, wandering around, writing, making the little meals, going for a walk in the bush, coming back. I was happy as a pig and shit, you know, wasn't miserable, not lonely. I was just going, oh, this could work. That could work. Well, that didn't work yesterday, but maybe this could work. Bliss. <laughs> How how can how can nature feed our art, Nigel? Yeah, and I, th- I think that's really really interesting. And and um, you know, I, I did spend a lot of time, as I was saying, at the northern beaches in Sydney. And I wasn't a surfer; I wasn't part of the surfing culture. I was just whether it was just happy on the sand or just happy in the water or seeing something lovely walk in front of me. That was all really lovely when I was growing up. And then doing a lot of um, living in the Blue Mountains. Um, uh, and bushwalking the Blue Mountains, and now and then I spent twenty years living in Canberra, and you know everyone laughs about Canberra being the place of politics, which it is, but for the vast majority of people, it's just another place. But where nature is so close, um, you can be in a suburb and walk five m- minutes, and you'll be up in Black Mountain or up um, Mount Ainsley with these beautiful views, or just drive half an hour and you're in the Brindabellas, which are just magic no wonder miles franklin loved living up there um so for, for me and, and i used to always listen to music when i walk but for the last 15 years i have learned just to walk and i did go for an hour and a half walk before this walter oh, wow. and i went to just walk to the edge of um goldburn and uh into the paddocks and it's just you know cattle and paddocks and beautiful views and then i walk through this small patch of land that's being regenerated by um, some locals and it's got you know discarded cars in it and crap and rubbish and a few little cubbies that kids have built but without fail when I walk through it if I'm anxious about something or nervous about something or just you know despondent and back going god Nigel you're the worst road in the world if I just walk through that no matter what the weather it can be like it was minus it feels like temperature this morning here was minus 10 so I was completely rugged up and I, I'm just, it's just, it just heals me. And I think there's something inherently wonderful and necessary about being in an ecology that is healthy or one that is being nurtured to be healthy. And I'll see kangaroos and wallabies and wombats and echidnas and all sorts of bird life and um, 
is uh, every time I walk through that, 100% of the time, walk in, be despondent, walk out, happy as Larry. And I think it's also just that thing about I just need every every little brain cell in my head to be firing and nature gets it firing. Mm. Mm. So I admire people like you who live, you know, in the guts of a very big city. And I don't know how you, you know, when I'm ever in Sydney, and I do get quite invigorated when I'm in Sydney, but, you know, 24 hours later, I'm keen to get on that train and head south again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's that, that sort of impulse towards escape is um it's a very sort of artistic one and i don't i don't mean escape is a as a bad thing i think uh, i think it's a necessary thing for all of us sometimes yeah and i, and I think sometimes people sort of say oh yeah, how was your retreat and i and i said no 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 it, it was a resonance it wasn't a retreat because retreat sounds like i'm retreating from the world for me even though more often than not going into fiction i'm going into fiction to to understand the world i feel like i'm going more into the world and if it's you know, with bodies of men, a war novel. I want to know why. Why did these men volunteer, and what did that? What did bravery mean? Or this new novel, which is about a, a man and his um, complex mother. You know, I want to go in there and find out about the world. And I come out of those that writing time, I think, knowing more about the world. And I hope my readers do too. Nigel Featherston, you mentioned. That that um, that craft is a real is a real element of writing, and I find in my own world that that people have a real real craving to learn to learn writing or or desire to to find something that will give them that stimulus. Uh, what would you say to people out there who want to write and um, and want to take that first step? Do you tell them to do a course or or just to start? Um, you know, it does go back to that thing of there's billion ways to write and you've got to find your own way of doing it. And, and, and you know, you have to read. You know, once again, Christos Chogos says reading is the alpha and the omega. You know, it just is just, you know, if, if you're not turned on by a beautiful sentence, you know, I know that, you know, I did, you know, I, one of the first novels I did read, I lived in Perth when I was 18, uh, 22, and um, I had just read a review, this amazing review by this nun of this incredible new novel by this wonderful novelist who lived in Perth. You probably can see where this is going. And I thought, I'll, I'll go to the record, the, the bookshop in um, Fremantle and buy this book. And it was called Cloud Street by Tim Winton. And I read it on Cottesloe Beach. And my, my copy still has sand in it from Cottesloe Beach. And I, I still think, you know, I know that, that there are those who criticise Winton and every writer should be criticised um, or get critical, you know, discussion. Uh, but I, that opened me up to how language can work and I thought that's there's a lot of magic in Cloud Street in lots of different ways. Um, and so you've got to, you've got to read. Um, you know, I do think you've got to live well and live... Um, as bravely and as courageously as you can. And I was, I must admit, I was one of those, and I, you know, I very much admire Charlotte Wood too, and I, I, I've read her Luminous Solution. I had a little chuckle because somewhere in, in that collection of essays about creativity, she says, oh, you know, those, those blokes who say all you need to do is live well and you'll be a great writer. And I thought, <laughs> ah, yes, yeah, Charlotte's got me again. <laughs> um, and, and so a couple of years ago I thought uh, I, I'm going to, 
do a poetry course and I have I've written a libretto that's been performed on you know in Sydney and um, Canberra and Goulburn and uh, so it's probably a bit late to actually go back and then work out how I did it but I did this wonderful poetry course with Melinda Smith who's won the Prime Minister's Prize for Poetry and she introduced me in that course to the concept of duende, D-U-E-N-D-E, um, which the poet, Spanish poet Lorca spoke about as the devil goblin, the devil muse. You've got, you got the muse that's going, oh, let's go and write about dancing and have fun. But then there's the devil muse, the goblin muse, the duende, which is encouraging you to go really deeper and and he Lorca called it a, a fight it's a wrestle and he gets it from from flamenco that wrestle that you get on the stage but that's that dark and light fighting each other on the stage and for me that just lit lit up my brain because i'm such a cautious person and um melinda then introduced me to a wonderful essay um by tracy k smith uh, about duende uh living living in two worlds at once i think it's called and I've read that. It's only a short essay, and I've read that and countless times, literally. And um, that encouraged me to, certainly in the writing of My Heart is a Wild Thing, if I had a safe choice or an uncomfortable choice or a very dangerous choice that made me shit scared, that was the duende going, come over here, Nigel, there's going to be something really interesting if we go into this very, very complex place. And I, I, that's what I did. I just had to, every, every step of the way I went, oh, shit, I could write a lovely scene about Patrick finding a wombat or he could talk about some complex stuff with his mother, really complex stuff about his mother. Think of the most complex stuff you can think about and challenging stuff between mothers and sons. And I went there. So that, that, that to me, um, you know, at the age of 51, I was then, that just changed the way I... I write. And I think one thing that I, I do say to people is um, carve out writing time and protect it with bows and arrows, every bit of armor you've got. Put a sign on it saying, on your door saying, no, nah, for the next two hours. Couldn't care less if the kids are running late. I really couldn't. Right now, I'm writing. And I think being that protective of your writing time and nothing can get in the way. Sure, if, you know, you get a call from the, an ambulance saying, you know, your partner's on the way to hospital, you might have to deal with that. But otherwise, quite honestly, everything else is trivial. And, you, and if every, every time you're writing and then someone rings up or you get an email or, you know, something happens or there's a car accident outside, it's okay to go right now, getting these words on the page is the most important. And I know that'll sound selfish, but I think if, if we carve that period for two or three hours a day, then you, then when you leave that zone, then you go, all right, other things are now more important. Um, and I, I think I often see people really struggling with that because they find it very difficult to put, even for an hour, to put writing at the top of the priority list, they find it very difficult to do. And, and I'll finish this round with this, and I think that's very much an Australian thing, that in Australia we don't... Um, put a value on creativity. Creativity is seen as a, is a, a feminised and feminine waste of time. Why, why write a novel? Why, why write a poem? Why write a song? This is useless, especially when you can't make money out of any of those things. Why would you do it? You know, it's a, it's a pufter's activity. It's a woman's activity and it's useless. Uh, and I think we very much need to fight back at that and go, it's not useless, it's essential and it's work. And I'm going to do it regardless of what you say.
here endeth the lesson. No, I want one more lesson from you, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, at the end of our podcast, I, 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 like to ask, um, I like to ask our guests uh, the question, what's one thing that our listeners can all start doing today to live a more expansive life? Uh, uh, um, read, read, a, read a, a writer that you've never read before. Um, someone from way outside your um, own experience. Um, you know, for, for me, when I discovered Clergy Norman's, um, Clergy Commons, rather Terra Nullius, that work of art rewired my brain. I felt changed by it. Recently, I've read uh, Evelyn Araluen's Drop Bear, a poetry collection that won the, uh, this year's um, Stella Prize. I felt changed the, at the end of it. Um, actually changed for, for the better. So I think that's one thing that, that we can all do is read, you know, go into your local bookshop and read something that's from completely out of your, um, your experience. And um, I think that that gives us a more expansive um, life. And I'm just going to be really hypocritical here because I think I'm a very judgmental person. <laughs> but I but I think that learning to um, uh, listen without judgment, and also <laughs> this is an irony, isn't it, Walter? Learning to shut up. Um, you know, learning for me, it's taken a long time to learn. You know what? Right now, silence for me is a really good thing and I'm just going to listen and learn and uh, be willing to actually be different at the end of that listening. So I, I you know, I'm just going to have to write that note because I'm going to have to remind myself the next time I'm out with people and I'm sitting there having my glass of wine or vodka or something and judging everybody inside. But I have been, in all seriousness, learning to um, just go right now, this is my voice is not important. Uh, what's important are the voices that I'm hearing around me and um, letting those um, speak volumes. Wonderful. It's, it's certainly been wonderful listening to you, Nigel, and, um, and I've learned a lot of lessons along the way. Tell me, where can people find you? Uh, you can, um, people can find me uh, online. I do have a website, nigelfeatherstone.com.au. I am on the dreaded uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Having said that, it is the most wonderful thing, as I'm sure has happened to you, Walter, where you get up in the morning and, you know, yes, I do check the socials and there'll be just a message from someone saying, you know, had one just only a couple of days ago, this is about my heart is a little wild thing, and someone just says, Nigel, I hope you don't mind me messaging you with, and maybe you don't like getting DMs, but your book is exquisite and I was so incredibly moved. So um, I'm on all the socials and um, people have, have I'm NG Feathers on Twitter and um, Instagram and, and I would love to hear from people. Well, Nigel, I'm certainly glad that I slid into your DMs and asked you to be here with us today. It's been so wonderful. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Expanded Thinking. If you would like to find out more about Nigel's books, head to the links in the show notes. Next week on the show, I'll be chatting to one of Australia's most fascinating social researchers, Maggie Hamilton, about the importance of social skills, why reconnecting with nature is vital to our well-being, and why we all must eventually grow up.
If you enjoy this show, please remember to subscribe and even better, leave us a review. Expanded Thinking Podcast is hosted by Walter Mason and produced by Talking Words. The podcast is recorded on Gadigal land. We wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging.